Well, let's turn now to John chapter 17. I gave you a heads up earlier, so if you didn't mark your place, well, you'll just have to catch up. The words will be on the screen here. The title of this morning's message is How Jesus is Praying for Us. We sang that he fights our battles, and he does, but he, does only, he doesn't only do that. He prays for us. And we want to read about and reflect upon how he is doing that from John 17. We're going to read verses 1 through 26. I'll ask you if you are able to stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we just give reverence to him and his authority as king and attentiveness to his voice in the scriptures. Listen to the word of the Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father... Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which, is, which you've given to me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them 
even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you now as always for your word, that it's true and living and active and powerful, able to cut to the very center of our being and discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts that we can't even discern about ourselves. So, Lord, you know what's there and what needs to be revealed to us and what you want to speak into our lives. And so, God, we ask that you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory and our good. And God, would you move me out of the way and use my voice as your instrument today for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is encouraging, isn't it, to learn that someone is praying for you. They're praying for you particularly in specific ways. And especially if they just volunteer that information um, uh, kind of in an unsolicited way, maybe not even when you're standing in front of them, uh, talking to them or anything, but just maybe uh, they send an email to you to let you know that or write a card and drop it in the mail or maybe even a phone call, that kind of thing to let you know they're praying for you in specific ways. That is encouraging. It is to me. By the way, I'm not dropping any hints or whatever, but just to say, I'm always encouraged by that. It made me think about some years ago, I heard a man tell the story of growing up with a twin brother. And sometimes in those prime years of boyhood, you know, around six to eight, probably somewhere in that range, uh, the two of them together could be exponentially rambunctious and troublesome to their mother. Of those of you who have raised or are raising one boy, don't find that at all hard to believe. They would be exponentially rambunctious if you add two of them, especially two twins. But this was their story. And uh, he would occasionally see and hear his mother standing at the kitchen sink, staring out the window and praying, Lord, help me with these boys. I don't know what to do with these boys. Those kinds of prayers that you've, you've, maybe you heard when you were a child in some way, and, and maybe you've uttered prayers like that as a parent. Lord, help me. God, I, I don't even know how to pray. Let the Holy Spirit help me with groans Utterances that can't be uttered. But he would hear his mother praying that way. And he was impacted by those prayers. I mean, he remembered it for his life, but he was impacted by it even as he was living contrary to her prayers. Right? Even in the moment when he was validating the need for those prayers. He was impacted by the fact that she was praying for him. 
the prayers of other people, make that sort of impact. And in John 17, we get to listen in as Jesus prays for us. That is, a, that is just a profound truth that he prays for us. And I, and I think it's one of those things that we, we need to ask God to help us really be gripped by today. Because in the opening verses here of John 17, he prays first for himself to be glorified, probably in the first five verses or so. And then in, beginning in verse 6, prays for his disciples. And then down in verse 20, adds to that, not only the, the 11 disciples, as it were, but in verse 20 he says, also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. Those of us who believe. He's praying not only for them at that time, that the 11, but also for us. This chapter is often called the high priestly prayer. And you may be familiar with the sort of concept that Jesus really functioned, operates in three offices of prophet, priest, and king. And perhaps his greatest act as high priest would be uh, carried out the following morning. It would really begin to unfold even just hours after this prayer where he would make sacrifice for our sins by his own blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, as Hebrews said. That was maybe his greatest act as high priest. But on this particular night... In this farewell discourse, he's performed the priestly role of interceding for his current disciples and for his future disciples. And this wasn't just a one-off prayer. It's not like once upon a time Jesus prayed for us. It says in Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since, listen, he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. I'm encouraged to know that. Don't know about you. And it isn't just general or generic intercession. If you belong to Jesus, he stands on your behalf making specific petitions for you. Listen, petitions you don't even think to make for yourself. He's praying for us when we forget to pray for ourselves. He, he's praying for us when we do pray for ourselves, but don't even pray rightly or completely. Making specific intercessions and petitions for us. And so I want to look here um, at this uh, concept, I suppose, of his intercession for us. And, and I think there's so much here in John 17. Actually, you could take this in multiple different sermons for sure. But um, there's a lot that could be focused on and unpacked. But I think the, the, the sort of substance of his prayer, uh, in the substance of his prayer, we find him really making essentially three requests to the Father on our behalf. And that is, number one, that he prays for our preservation in the faith. 
Number two, that he prays for our purity. And number three, for our unity. I want to look at it under those headings today. First, he prays for the preservation, our preservation in the faith. In the middle of verse 11, Jesus says, And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. So Jesus came from outside of this world into the world, and then he's getting ready to go back out of the world. And he's saying that his disciples are remaining in the world. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Jesus knows that the world where he's leaving them is a hostile and difficult place. You remember he said uh, just a couple of messages ago, the world will hate you because it hated me. The world does hate you. And I'm telling you this, remember, so that you won't fall away. He understands the temptation to fall away. He knows what temptation feels like himself. And he's seen people fall away. He knows his disciples will feel the pressure to forsake him in order to save their own skin which you and I would be inclined to do probably as well. He tells them that, you're going to scatter. And they do, they scramble. They're not really sure what happened and kind of how to respond to it. He knows that kind of pressure and has experienced himself. Remember Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. What's your weakness today? What's your weakness that, that you've lived with all, all of your Christian life that trips you up and makes you stumble? Um, what's your, what's the, the point of weakness that even at times has made you hang on to your faith just by a thread? We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with that, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He knows And he knows for them, it's going to be hard to be a Christian. It's going to be hard to remain a follower of Jesus. And as we've considered, that hasn't ceased to be true um, somewhere at some time on down through the centuries. It is less true in our experience here in our culture as we keep saying that's maybe in the process of changing right now, but many of us can remember a time in the small town south where it was hard not to be a Christian, right? Like it was culturally kind of taboo if you weren't part of a church. There were people who would be affiliated with the church just for the social connections or whatever, or just to avoid maybe the kind of um, scorn that they might receive for not being at least giving the appearance of being a Christian. It was advantageous even for business reasons. Some of us can remember that in our lifetime. And now each generation faces a world in which it gets harder and harder to be a Christian, at least a faithful follower of Jesus who truly believes all of what he taught and strives to conform their life to all of who he was. There's intense pressure to give in. And that doesn't appear to be 
That doesn't give any sign of relenting anytime soon. Um, unless God graces us with a great awakening revival of some sort, that intensity is just going to increase. But we can be greatly encouraged knowing that it's not just up to us to hang on, but that he's hanging on to us. Aren't you glad about that? We don't have to just hang on. He's hanging on to us. Jesus is praying that the Father will pre uh, preserve you and me in our faith, even when we're not strong enough to do so ourselves. And so that's the first point of prayer he makes for us is for our preservation in the faith. The second is for his purity. At least that's sort of the way that I uh, am reading this and um, kind of organizing this. Verse 15 says, he prays not only that the Father will keep us in his name, as we just considered, but that he'll keep us from the evil one. There are some translations that say, keep us from evil. But it, that'll keep us from the evil one. And you could argue, I suppose, that this prayer, uh, it, it, this is much a prayer for our protection as it is for our purity. You could certainly say that to keep us, to protect us, if you will, from the evil one. But I think as you look at sort of the, the, the surrounding context, um, that this sort of makes sense to regard this, that in keeping us from the evil one, he is keeping us in the purity that he's called us to. He repeats multiple times in this prayer and in the passages preceding this that his disciples are not of this world. Right? They're not of this world. They're in this world, he says. They're not of this world, but they're sent into the world but not of this world. They and we are to be set apart from the world's way of thinking and valuing and prioritizing and so forth. And the primary instrument that he uses for that purpose is his word. You notice in verse 17, it says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Verse 19, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. The word sanctify means to be set apart. In fact, in the ESV, there's a little footnote. If you have that translation, you see down at the bottom, it says that it's set apart for his purpose. That's what he's praying that we would be set apart from the world for God's purposes, purified in that sense. It would seem to me, from a certain perspective, that in the last several decades, the church has gone, in some cases, to great lengths to be more like the world. And maybe with good intentions, uh, with a desire of reaching the world. I think... There's enough data in to suggest it hasn't worked. That being more like the world hasn't won the world. And it's far more complex than that. So I'm not making 
summary judgments about the state of the union in Christendom here. But, but we have, in many ways, in, uh, at least in American evangelicalism, gone to great lengths, almost constantly, to adapt ourselves to the world's patterns in a variety of ways in the interest of winning the world. I was uh, thinking, recalling uh, a comment I heard from a youth pastor that sort of touches on this. He wasn't saying this specifically with this uh, application of view, but his youth pastor friend years ago was teaching on the, the subject of holiness and sanctification and so, so forth uh, to a youth group. And he said, if you put on a white glove and rub it in the dirt, does the glove get dirty or does the dirt get glovey? <laughs> and we might ask a similar question that if the church constantly wraps itself in worldly standards, in worldly ways of thinking and living and so forth, does the church get worldly or does the world get churchy? Again, I think we could look and make it, we've got, we've, we've, We've had enough uh, data uh, recorded now, enough, enough in the rearview mirror to assess um, that the world hasn't really gotten more churchy over the last several decades. Jesus has called out of the world a people for himself and is praying that God will keep us from the evil one. He prays for our preservation in the faith and for our purity and then finally for our unity. He says four different times here, if you were halfway awake while I was reading, you couldn't have missed this one, I don't think. That he, uh, he says four different times that he's praying for his disciples that they may be one as he and the Father are one. It says it in verse 11, 21, 22, and 23. And so that, consequently, that the world may know and believe that Jesus came for the Father, from the Father. Pause on that for just a minute to sort of lay hold of the significance for you and me of what he's saying. I pray that you would make them one as we are one so that the world may know and believe in me. Part of our testimony to the world is not just what we say, but what we declare to the world by our unity as his people. Or what we declare by our disunity as his people might be resounding as well. Earlier in John's gospel, you know, Jesus had said the world would recognize his disciples by their love for one another. And he reinforces that here by saying their love for one another manifests in unity. And that is a testimony to the world as well. Some have suggested that the answer to this prayer will come through a great ecumenical movement, you know, that basically... Uh, when we just get rid of denominations and there's only one visible church, that, that would be the fulfillment of this 
prayer. Well, that is not likely to happen. And we ought not necessarily to expect it to. If it ever does, it'll be a miracle because denominations uh, essentially exist because of fundamental disagreements about truth. That's not the whole story, but the reason why there are different denominations, different expressions of Christianity is because uh, people, earnest people, fervent believers of Jesus, open the Bible, read it, and come to different conclusions about things that are essential and can be more unified as the church, broadly speaking, if they pursue their calling and ministry uh, on parallel lanes rather than living together. But anyway, um, that again, it'll, it'll, it'll take a, uh, really a miracle to bring um, total agreement about uh, all of the essential truths of Christianity. That's hard to foresee. But the point is, truth is at the center of that consideration. And it is folly to think that we can attain unity at expense of the truth. And there are people who have tried. And he says, he puts truth here um, at the center of his prayer that they would, that the church would be sanctified in the truth. And you cannot attain unity apart from the truth. It doesn't work. Just ask the Church of England. I hate to call somebody out specifically, but, but um, you could, there's a church that has tried to stay together have prized unity and have shunned truth almost altogether, at least from, from, from what I can see. Um, that it's become uh, uh, really just a dwelling place for an ideological kind of liberalism or whatever. That's become the message that's been substituted for the gospel. And their, 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 their churches are just dead and it's such that you've got these beautiful church structures over there that now are, some of them are museums. Some of them are literally amusement parks, you know, uh, bouncy houses inside them on special occasions and things like that. And don't think it's just because of old forms of worship either. I may have shared um, some time ago, we were away on vacation uh, sometime last year and attended a an Anglican church, one of the oldest in the country, um, hundreds of years old, but a gospel-believing, Bible-believing, full-of-life Anglican church, reading their liturgy out of the Book of Common Prayer from 1662. It doesn't have to do with the old forms. It has to do with the truth and the life of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit in it. And so let's don't get misguided and get things out of order to think somehow we can pursue unity at the expense of truth. Because if we pursue unity above the truth, we will end up with neither unity nor the truth. But if, as a priority, we pursue truth together, and we really want to find the truth together, 
will attain greater measures of both truth and unity. But Jesus is praying that we would be one. And by the way, my remarks there uh, are not intended at all to make us feel comfortable splintering um, as Christians in a million different directions because it would appear to, appear to me not only um, are we very divided in lots of ways, but we, we aren't even trying in a lot of cases to be one in any meaningful sense anymore. Um, just broadly speaking within evangelicalism anyway. This is his prayer for us and that ought to matter to us. It, it, it ought to point us back to Ephesians 4 where it says that those who walk in a manner worthy of the calling of Christ would be humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love and making every effort to maintain unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity requires effort. And we ought to make the effort, Jesus is praying, that our oneness as his people would testify to the world of who he is and what he has done. Well, I want to conclude with this quote from an old dead guy, those are good to read sometimes, Louis Burkhoff. But it's a, just a wonderful summary of this prayer and the encouragement that we get knowing that Jesus is praying for us. He says this, it's a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us. Even when we are negligent in our prayer life, that he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present in our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers. And that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us, though we did not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. That's a good word, isn't it? That you and I have an advocate with the Father. I don't know about you. I need an advocate with the Father. Actually, I'm just being polite. I do know about you and you need one too. <laughs> and we have one in Jesus and amen and hallelujah to that. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we do thank you for the indescribably good work of Jesus for us, the immeasurably rich love of Jesus toward us. And Lord, expressed among other ways, by his intercession for us. Lord, I pray for personal encouragement for people today who feel alone in their struggle, who feel unseen and unnoticed and not understood by anybody. Lord, I pray 
that you would give them the assurance that there is one, at least one, who sees, who notices, who understands, and who prays the way no one else can pray and whose prayers are heard in a way that no one else's are heard. Would you encourage us with that truth? Fill us with your spirit that we might be empowered to live into the prayers that Jesus makes for us. That we might be held fast in the faith. That we might become more pure and more separated in our character and conduct and values from the world. And that out of our love for you and for one another, we might become more unified to the glory of your great name. Amen.